0: Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. He did not know what to say to them. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judah said, Rabbi, and kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God.
1: Let me pray. Jesus, as we just come to you this morning, as we desire to encounter you, God. As we desire to sit under the authority of your scriptures, your your revelation of who you are to us, God, would you, uh, like, would you pour your spirit out on this place? Would you pour your spirit out on me and these people as our, like, greatest desire in the world is to live in your presence? Come, Holy Spirit, and have your way in us this morning. We love you. We adore you. We are so thankful for you. and We pray these things in Jesus' name amen amen you can be seated you can be seated we'll try to eliminate the sound feedback uh that I think I caused. So, it's my fault. Um, so glad that you are here this morning. My name's Nick. I'm one of the leaders here at River and Way. We're excited for you to be here. We are kicking off a Linton series, a series on Lent, uh, the kind of the last week of Jesus's life as we look toward preparing our hearts to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus come Easter morning. So, often in the scriptures, so, so some of you, if you don't have uh, some of you are like hear the word Lent and immediately go like Catholic, and that's not wrong, uh, but it's also not right. And so we uh, here at River and Way believe to like fully celebrate Jesus's resurrection. It takes forty days of our hearts anticipating and participating in Christ's suffering as we like choose to lay something aside to make ourselves consciously aware of God each day. So our our hope and the heart behind this is that as we lean into practicing Lent, that like we do that with our eyes set upon Resurrection Sunday. This is not just some like religious thing we do for the sake of religiosity. This is about like you experiencing God in the ordinary minutia of your day each and every day. So that's really like the heartbeat of Lent, and that's where we're going to spend the next six weeks looking at um, is the last week of Jesus's life. The last week of Jesus' life, with an orientation towards Lent, with an orientation towards recognizing uh, what, what Christ has given up for us and how we get to participate in that with Him. Let me pray, just quickly again. God, uh, even you know my own like heart and mind, and you know there's like lacking clarity in it this morning. But God, your people are here not to hear from like a man speak, but to hear from you, God. And so would you speak uh, this morning to people's hearts? Would you meet people right where they are and like reveal a bit more of who you are to them by the power of your spirit, God? We trust you. We love you. We submit this time to you and ask that in all things, Christ, you would be glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember when Wesley, our fourth son was born, there were complications with his delivery and he was born healthy. He was okay, but something was going on with my wife, Jackie, and they couldn't figure out what was really going on. They couldn't discover what the problem even was. And I remember being in the delivery room 30, 45 minutes after. Wesley had been born and knowing something was wrong and seeing this look on the doctor's face that is not the look you want to see on a doctor's face. I remember seeing the look on her face of like, I hope this works, but I'm not terribly sure that it will. And then I remember seeing the continued disappointment of like, no, that didn't work either. And then ultimately her words to me and to Jackie who's like in and out of it, where I don't know what's wrong, but we need to go to the operating room. We need to hurry. So one hour old Wesley and I sat in the rocking chair of the delivery room. And we waited and we waited and we waited and they told us that it would be an hour and when we hit the three hour mark, the like anxiety and anticipation in our my heart, not our heart, he's like one hour, <laughs> like he's, he's okay, but my own heart, It's overwhelmed. I remember those three hours of like praying and singing and crying and not having words to express what I was feeling, but holding my newborn son. And I remember wondering out loud what was going on, fully realizing kind of the severity of the situation. And and while Jackie obviously is okay, some medical care later, she's fine what that moment does, and we all have those sort of moments in life, is when we're confronted with pain and suffering or mortality of either ourselves or someone near to us, it reveals something deep inside of us. It reveals what really matters to you. It reveals what's really important to you, your true values, it reveals, it actually reveals the thing that you've built your life upon or said differently from the New York Times best-selling author, Mitch Albom, who wrote the book Tuesdays with Maury, which many of you read in your required reading in high school, you may have just scanned the pages like I did, I don't know. But it's this memoir about Maury's life and a, a student of his who interviews him in the kind of dying days and months of his life. And Maury says, the truth is, once you learn how to die, you really learn how to live. Hardship and death and conflict, they reveal these things about our life and they reveal about how to truly live. And so that memory of Jackie in my mind as we come to this text, the question we see Jesus answering with his life as he is confronted with the most difficult thing ahead of him in his life is how do you respond? Jesus, fully aware of what's going on, the moment that he's in, in his own journey, the invitation from the Father, and how does he respond? Between now and Easter, we are going to look at Jesus' last week, his journey toward the cross, and we are going to see him confronted with this coming reality of crucifixion that he is fully aware of. And our hope is that this draws us closer to understanding Jesus more, that our community understands Jesus more, but it also invites us to practicing his ways and building our life on the things that he built his on, that we both fall more in love with Jesus and are challenged to become more like him. That's the hope of Lent. Earlier in this chapter of Mark, we see some pretty radical things going on. We see Jesus eating at Simon the leper's house, which is controversial in its own right. And then a woman shows up and takes this like alabaster perfume that is worth an annual wage in that day and pours it out on Jesus. And some people gawk and make a big deal that this should not be done because this money could be given to the poor. And if I'm honest, I would probably be one of those people too. And Jesus says, no, this is totally appropriate for her to pour this perfume out on me. And the other people, um, and then Jesus says, like, she's preparing me for my burial, which I imagine his friends aren't a terribly big fan of, that line from him. And then we see Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, leave to go gather the crowd to come and capture Jesus. Jesus. And then Jesus, with his followers and his friends, prepare and share a Passover meal, this dinner that's a picture of God's salvation in the story of Israel, as Jesus' week continues to build. And then Jesus sits his friends down after the meal and says, "All of you are going to fall away from me. All of you are going to leave." And Peter, man, I love Peter. Peter jumps in and says, like, not me, rabbi. Not me, they might, but I'm going to follow you even if until death, Peter says, I will follow you. And that takes us to today's text, where Jesus, Peter, James, and John are in the Garden of Gethsemane, a place Jesus would often go to pray. He takes his closest friends like on this little sleepover to get alone with God after a pretty intense few days and what might be a pretty intense coming week. But what we clearly see now that the disciples did not see at the time is that Jesus is about to step into the climactic moment of his calling. He's about to step into doing and abiding faithfully with God in the hardest thing that he's been invited to do that he's been asked to do. Jesus is about to be given to the Roman Empire to be crucified because he intimidates the Jewish leaders and they don't really know what to do with them. And so knowing that this is coming, Jesus, knowing that this is coming, knowing that the torture and the pain and the suffering and the loneliness and the sadness and the heartbreak and every other human emotion that can go with that does, knowing that this is coming, what does Jesus do? Jesus prays. He takes his friend to the place where they pray, and he prays. In verse 32, he asks his friends to stay awake and keep watch while he prays. In verse 35, he falls to the ground and prays. He prays that this hour might pass from him, that the hour that he was specifically sent to endure, he prays that it would go away. He prays that his own will, Jesus' will, would be done, that this mission could be complete or finished or done aside from this affliction, and that God would take this cup from him. And then he concludes his prayer with, not my will, but what you will, God. May that be done. One thing that is different from the life of Jesus and from my life, maybe yours too, is the centrality of Jesus' life around one thing, around prayer, around communing with God, communing, like sharing union with, having relationship with God. I could tell you that if I was about to endure the hardest week of my life, my default mechanism, Lord have mercy, would not be to run to him in prayer. I would probably run around and try to control as much of my life as I, as I could, as possible. But Jesus doesn't do that. Or I might take time explaining to my children and my friends and my family that this is going to be really hard and console them and comfort them. But Jesus doesn't do that either. And I might even act, knowing my own tendencies, I might act like this isn't even really happening until it's too late and then there's nothing more that I could do, and then I might go to prayer. But Jesus doesn't do that either. Jesus is keenly aware of what is happening and what is going to happen, and in preparation for Jesus' most difficult days, his first movement is to go to a place where he prays. And he doesn't throw up this like Hail Mary sort of prayer. He doesn't throw up some dire, Lord, please save me, because then if you do, I will commit my life to you, sort of prayer. Because those are actually words of like immature relationship, and Jesus does not have an immature relationship with the Father. Jesus' words are words of intimacy and care, concern and passion, honesty and conviction, words of love and hope and peace. As Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, which literally means, Garden of Gethsemane, like Gethsemane means olive press. So when he's in the place where olives are pressed to make oil, and oil, Paul goes on to describe it like this in 2 Corinthians We are hard pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. But how in the world is Jesus not crushed? Jesus' response, again, is not distraction or denial or disgust or self-pity. Jesus does what he has always done. Jesus does what he was sent here to do. Jesus turns with his whole life again to the Father. And this happens not because Jesus spends an hour praying each morning. This happens because Jesus lives into what Dallas Willard calls a praying life. A life completely saturated with prayer or with communion with God. What the Apostle Paul invites us into in First Thessalonians to be people who pray without ceasing, as Jesus did. And one of the downfalls we often think about, or one of the downfalls of the way we often think about prayer is that we think we're supposed to de- develop a prayer life. And that's, that's not totally wrong, but the hard part is We always end up feeling guilty that we don't pray enough because when it comes to spending conscious time fully aware of the presence of like the communion and union of God, then how could we ever pray enough? And you could ask anyone who spends hours of time dedicated to like communion with God in the morning, and they too would tell you, I don't get enough time with God. And that is why we must learn to like shift our thinking and shift our imagination, not away from structured prayer times. Those are beautiful and full and rich and needed. We see Jesus do it regularly, but we must begin to see that the goal of prayer is not that we just pray each day, but the goal of prayer is that everything we do in life, we do with God. Everything we do in life, that we do it with God. Not just a check-in in an hour in the morning. That's like, that'll get you to lunchtime. But then my soul is worn down and tired by the world. Or Brother Lawrence, a French monk who wrote a These only, or those only can comprehend it who practice it and who experience it. If prayer is communion with God or union with God or it's like shared conscious relationship with God, then prayer is not just a thing we do as Christians. Prayer is like the primary thing we do as Christians. Prayer is not a thing. Prayer is then like everything. Communion with God is not a thing. It is everything. Everything. And sometimes, at least for me, when I imagine monks like Brother Lawrence, whose life is to be completely removed from culture and live in a monastery of people just like him, or if I think of like the Apostle Paul who instructs us to pray without ceasing, I get this picture, and sometimes we get this picture, that I am called to communion with God, which means this like hyper-spiritual, 100% dedicated time to just being in God's presence, And while that is important, that is one aspect of prayer. What the ancients would actually call more like silence and solitude than what they would call prayer. Because what happens when we think about prayer in that way is we end up feeling this unduly burden to like pray without ceasing, Paul's words, but to do that with no distraction or limitation. So that means that like if you're a mother of young kids or have any sort of life, you don't get to have a fruitful prayer life. And that is like harmful to the way that we think about communing with God. That is no longer helpful, that is no longer realistic. And that's not just mothers of kids, that's like people who have jobs that are demanding and they're contributing to the world in significant ways. All those sorts of, like, relationships that we exist in, like, we, like, that's a part of the manifestation of God working in and through our lives. So we can't just, like, pull apart from the world and all become monks to pray. And I don't think Jesus' invitation for abiding in him or communing with him is just for, like, when our kids get older and they're finally out of the house. I don't think it's for like when I retire and I don't have a 40, 50, or 60 hour work week anymore. I don't think that's Jesus' invitation for his people. I don't think that's what communion with God actually looks like. I don't think Paul's words of pray without ceasing are just for monks, nuns, and priests. I think they're for everyone. I think they're for each of us. But I think we have to reimagine and relearn what prayer is. We have to dream again. And this opportunity to pray or to have communion with God where we both speak and we listen, where we share our most intimate and most ordinary aspects of life with God. And then we also allow God to share his life with us. That we pray when we feel God's presence, that we commune with God when we feel his presence, and we also commune with God when we don't feel his presence when we just trust it and believe it to be true. And there have been seasons in my life where I have gone months, if not years, where I don't feel God's presence. Like, that's normal, church. That is normal, but then, too, we pray. Where we have many words to cry out to God or like in the bleakest moments of my own life, I can better, barely mutter a like, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. It may be for you more like a morning ritual of chatting with God while you make coffee or listening for his invitation of what like faithful living looks like for you today or setting your alarm or your like phone alarm to remind yourself to be aware of God's presence again at one in the afternoon or two in the afternoon or three in the, like whenever your heart begins to wander away from him, set your alarm for then to be a present to God again in the day. Prayer is the invitation to live all of life with God. And again, this is not a thing, it is everything. Just for a second, like whatever you imagine heaven to be like, being present fully to God is going to be the centerpiece of eternal life with Him. And the secret is that we don't, and it's like we don't have to wait for that. We have to wait for that in fullness, yes, but we get to taste and drink of that in the now. We get to do that now. We get to commune with God now. And this is what we see time and time and time again in the life of Jesus. This is what Paul invites us to do. This is what the saints teach us through history to do. Not some big supernatural prayer meeting, but the ordinary conversation with God throughout all of your day in all of your week, in all of your month, all of your year, and all of your life. Again, Brother Lawrence's words, there is not a life more sweet than that of a continual conversation with God. And church, this is our invitation. It is our invitation that we, like, begin to live how Jesus lived. Jesus lives this way at this moment in his story, but he doesn't like just turn to prayer because it's getting hard, he turns to prayer because this is like his fundamental operating system. This is where Jesus like really knows who he is and how to live is because he communes regularly with the Father. This is where he hears an invitation to faithfulness over the next week that seems unfathomable to be tortured, to suffer, and to die. And as Jesus processes this unique mission, he does not process it alone, nor does he process it with his friends, but he processes it with his father. He processes it with God. It is important that as we explore this last week of Jesus' life that we keep in mind what Jesus says here. He doesn't say to God, I will do what you want because I have to avenge your anger. He does not say that. He doesn't challenge God's character or God's will or God's like picture of redemption. He calls God Abba. He calls God Father. He uses intimate language. He could have called God lots of things, but he calls him Father. And over this next week, Jesus binds his submission and agreement to move forward in this specific mission from a place of prayer and unique intimacy with his Father. Father. This is the fulfillment of Trinitarian love, and I know that's a big statement and that's okay. This is self-sacrificial love. This is the father acting in love for the world even at the cost of his own son and at his own grief and at his own pain. And if prayer is communion with God, I can only imagine the shared affliction in this conversation as Jesus sorts out what is to come for him. As he explores this with the father. The best I can imagine it comes from Genesis 22, which is this picture where Abraham is going to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And they take this journey up the mountain. And as you read the story and understand the context, you see that, like, you see the struggle and the conflict and the pain in Isaac, of course, but you also see the struggle and the pain in Abraham the father. You see that like they're both struggling to yield to what God has invited them to. And so as we see this like conversation between Jesus and the Father, we must know that like, this is a heart-wrenching conversation. But because Jesus sees God as a good father and in a more Jewish interpretation of the word Abba, like a good daddy or a good papa, Jesus has this conversation and comes out with this place of like deep trust because of the intimacy that he shares with the father. And God as a good father knows all of the things that there is to know about his son that only a good father can know. And what's beautiful about the gospel story and about being invited in to be a part of God's family is God doesn't just reserve these things for Jesus. You tick and he knows your deepest insecurities and every single inch of your pain. He knows your character and your tendencies and your personality. He knows what type of people you gravitate toward and what type of people get under your skin. He knows what makes you smile and what makes you cry. He knows your childhood and your experiences and your pain and your wonderings and your misgivings and your love and your forgiveness your lack of forgiveness and your desires and your dreams and your wishes. He knows all of these things about you. Every single one of them. And he like lavishes to love you well. That is his deepest desire as a good father, as you are children adopted into the family of God, that he would pour out love on you. And in that same way, with that same mindset, Jesus, his son, cries out to the one whom he created the heavens and the earth with, who he's existed in relationship with, and says, Daddy, do I have to drink this cup? And God says, yes. With great pain and hurt and turmoil within his own being, God says, yes. You have to go on this journey. You have to fulfill this mission and this purpose. And Jesus grieves this reality. And then he yields to his father's will. He trusts his dad. And Jesus trusts that what he said yes to and following and obeying God is actually worth it even if his present experiences don't feel like it. And this story goes on that Judas then like shows up with the lynchmen, shows up with the crowd and they come to take away Jesus. Judas gives Jesus a kiss to show the crowd which one he is. Peter flashes some like handy sword work to try to defend Jesus. Jesus heals the man whose ear Peter cuts off all in a different gospel. But what's interesting about when the officials show up to arrest Jesus is the story reads like Jesus is still in charge of the situation. Jesus isn't captured in the garden. He's arrested, sure, but he is not captured. Jesus gives himself over to the crowd of men. When the crowd with the swords are walking toward the garden, I'm sure that in their own heads they are planning and thinking about how they're going to capture Jesus. When, like him and his disciples, run away, we're going to have to change, and then we'll change our formation and surround this side of the garden or whatever it looks like. I'm not sure, but they expect a fight when they show up. And Jesus does not ever resist in the way that they expect Him to. Jesus delivers Himself into the hands of those that will fulfill the Father's will. Jesus, as a picture of what is to come, gives His life to those that seek to destroy Him. He does not fight, nor run, nor hide. Jesus' fully control of the situation does not yield to the circumstances Let me say that again, Jesus fully in control of the situation does not yield to the circumstances, but Jesus does yield to the Father. Jesus does not give himself to the men because they have overtaken him, Jesus gives himself to the men because Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing, as John five says. Jesus isn't yielding to what's around him, Jesus is yielding to his Father not my will but yours be done. So often when things become difficult in our lives we find ourselves trying to fight and change our circumstances or we give in and yield and compromise to our circumstances. But I think the invitation as we just prayed this week the invitation for the following Or we can fight to change our circumstances, but I think one of the, and this is a unique invitation from the Spirit of God, is that like He will empower you to press through in your circumstances. And the book of Psalms calls this like to be emboldened, or the book of Acts called this empowered by the Spirit. Paul calls this living in the Spirit. But as we become people of prayer, we are empowered by the Spirit to be able to yield our will to God. In the same sort of way, Jesus, rooted in prayer, sure of his mission and vocation in the coming days, Jesus gives his life to those that seek to take it. He doesn't tell his friends or disciples what's going on, he's already warned them before, now it's like they must watch and see. He doesn't counsel or console, he looks to the Father and chooses to walk in his Father's will and plan for him, and then everyone leaves. In this part of the story, verse 50 through 52, I'll read it again. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. To answer that question real quick, it's weird. We think it's Mark. It's okay. But that's not what we're going to talk about. We must know that being modern day readers of this text, we tend to take this story as something important to read about leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection, and that isn't wrong. But for just a moment, I want to let it sink in that this is not just some story leading to another story. For a group of people in this garden, this is their reality. This is real life. This is so real that all the disciples that are there just early in the week who promised their allegiance to Jesus and that they would never run, they take off running for their lives. That this reality is so scary and so present that it justifies abandoning the rabbi you've spent your life with. It justifies abandoning your best friend and giving him over to the hands of your enemies. This story is moving towards Jesus' conclusion as crucified Messiah. And the place that this journey will take him is not a wealthy place or a worldly, comfortable place. He's not overthrowing Roman rule. He's not going to live a life of luxury. There's no comfort. There's no condo by the sea. There's no middle class life in the city. There's no power and influence. There's no celebrity. It's a like meager out, like, like the place where Jesus is going is not one we want to go. But this is where he's going. He's going to the cross. And this reality is real and it's heavy and it's hard. And this is Jesus' call fulfilled and it isn't pretty or clean. It's actually quite the opposite. It's dirty and it's messy. And we see here again in this reading from verse 50 to 52, it's really, really, really lonely. He comes to Gethsemane to pray, and its best friends fall asleep not once, not twice, but three times after he asks them to stay awake with him. One of his disciples, closest friends, shows up on the scene, gives him a kiss, a sign of love to a rabbi and a friend, but that kiss is meant to betray him, to reveal who he is to the crowd, and everyone deserts him. And often we talk about the kingdom of God breaking in heaven on earth we talk about the power and the glory and the might of god's rule and reign and supremacy we talk about the fact that the gates of hell cannot stand against it and that is all true and right and good and i cannot wait cannot wait for that day to like fully come and fully be present but we must not miss that like this too Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, this too is life in the kingdom of God. Jesus is walking in pain and suffering toward the cross is the inbreaking kingdom of God at work. And sometimes, not all the time, because I don't want to be overly fatalistic, but sometimes suffering and the kingdom of God seem to go hand in hand. At least they clearly do in the last week of Jesus' life. And there will be times as you like desire for the kingdom of God to break in, there will be times that you feel alone or like you are suffering or that nobody understands. You will feel all of those things. But Jesus knows, even when he is abandoned by his friends, that at the very core of who he is, he walks in communion with God. He walks in union with the presence of God. And as we just wrap up this text today, I think that's the invitation for us. That as we learn to have communion with God or share relationship with God or spend time with God, whatever language makes the most sense to you, that then we are empowered by the Spirit of God to have the capacity to yield our lives to Him. Friends, like willpower cannot cannot take you to transformation in the kingdom. The Spirit has to take you to transformation in the kingdom. If anything, like we see through willpower, none of us are living the lives we really want to be living based on our willpower alone. But the Spirit of God desires to like empower you to flourish in a different sort of way. And so as we commune with God, the Spirit empowers us to be able to yield ourself to Him. And as we yield our life to Him, May the kingdom of God break in regardless of what that looks like to our present reality. And ultimately, this is what the season of Lent is about. Lent is the regular and sacrificial laying down of something to participate in the suffering of Christ. That it might form us, not just in 40 days, but form us for the rest of our life. Living in communion with God as we practice submission and obedience to Him. You see, communion with God in all of life is all Christ ever wanted, even if it led him to death. But it is better to die with God, the Father who knows you and sees you and loves you, than it is to live without him or in disobedience to him. So I think the question that just continues to permeate is like, do you want to be with God? Do you want to commune with God? Do you want to have union and relationship, like deeper, intimate, mature relationship with God? And this isn't like a one-time prayer sort of thing. This is like we must learn how to like build our lives differently sort of thing. Because the reality is, is that he wants to be with you. He is here now, and he wants to meet with you, and he wants to talk with you. He wants to hear you talk and share your heart. And so in that same sort of way, our hope is that as a community through Lent, that we like lay something aside that daily calls our attention to the presence of God, his nearness in us. That if like, as we say no to something, we don't say no for the sake of saying no. We say no to something for the sake of saying yes to God. That is the heartbeat of Lent. As the heartbeat of like sacrificing something that we might like find ourselves in Christ's presence more often, and that that would form us, and that we would take like steps to rebuild our life to where it like begins to look a bit more like a continuous conversation with God. Let us pray. Jesus, we just come to you now and we're so thankful for your model in your life, but we're also thankful for your nearness and your presence. We're thankful that you are at work and that you are, like, at work amongst us, but, like, in the depths of our own heart. God, would you, like, stir our affections to love you more, to be more drawn to you, to want to commune and communicate with you more and more and more. And, God, would you free us of the, like, guilt and shame that can sometimes come with this conversation. That is not your heart for your children. Your heart is for them to flourish but it's not to be bound by guilt and shame. So may we experience freedom by the power of your spirit and may we like say yes to stepping into like continuous conversation with you, Father. Thank you that we are your children. Even when we don't feel like it, God, we are your children when we are like bound by the blood of Christ. So God, we just receive your love again now and we like, we worship you. And we thank you. We love you. and We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we worship?